think it's a babe. Babe with the power. Power voodoo. Remind me of the babe. Hello and welcome to the Cinema in Seconds podcast. This is the podcast where we look at small moments in great movies. And this week, we are taking a trip into the fantastical. We are talking about moments from fantasy movies. My name is Ian. And I'm Daniel. And we have a returning guest, Brooke. Welcome back to the podcast. Hello. Thank you for having me. Welcome back. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> yeah. So fantasy clearly was something that you were interested in coming back for because you did one of our horror episodes back then. So you're a, are you a fantasy fan? Then I take it. Yes. Yeah. Fantasy, sci-fi, horror, kind of those three genres are the big three for me. Um, uh, But yeah, no, this week was also hard for me to pick just two moments because I just, I have a big library of fantasy movies that I watch. Um, But uh, it was fun kind of reviewing some old favorites. So that was cool. And you also seem to grow up with a lot of uh, fantasy movies more than I did because I, like I watched the Lord of the Rings movies when they came out and I watched Harry Potter. But other than that, I was not diving too deeply into like the 80s fantasy films, say. <laughs> yeah, that was like the complete opposite of me. It was like more like 80s, 90s. And then eventually I would get to like the more modern stuff. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, the 80s was kind of rich for those like, especially like family friendly fantasy movies. Mm-hmm. And then they just kind of disappeared for a while. And then. Well, most of them didn't make any money. Even the ones yeah. that are well-remembered today were like flops. That's true. Um, Cult classics. Yep. Yep. <laughs> Everyone was like, oh, Star Wars is popular. This is easy. Oh, oh, never mind. It's very hard. <laughs> yeah. It's hard for people to get involved in weirdo worlds. Well, it's funny. Like, before. I, I rewatched this week for another project, uh, M. Night Shyamalan's Lady in the Water, which is a fantasy film. And I did consider briefly, I'm like, can I do something from this movie? And the answer is no, because it is not, not good. But <laughs> it's a good example, even though it's a different flavor than like the 80s fantasy movies of how hard it is to do that kind of stuff. Because we all accept orcs and goblins, even though that's like really nerdy niche stuff. But when Paul Giamatti turns to Bryce Dallas Howard and asks, what's a narf? It's like, I'm out. <laughs> <laughs> And it's like, why, why is one, why does one work and the other one doesn't? And there's a lot of complex reasons, but it's just, it's a good indicator of like making people buy into this stuff is such yeah. a fine line. Cause if you fail, it just seems like the most embarrassing gobbledygook in the world. Yeah, that's a very good point. Are you guys uh, fantasy readers at all? Do you get into any of the book Yeah, series? I read, I read a lot of like high fantasy books. Um, I read this one series actually is I think probably from like the seventies or eighties uh, that I actually found out from my babysitter cause she was reading it. And uh, turns out one of her like parents, best friends was one of the authors. So that's how she got into it. Oh, really? And then, yeah. And then, so she had signed copies of the books and I just liked the art on it with the dragons and the, the elves and the dwarfs and stuff. And so I ended up reading the series. It's one of my favorites, but yeah, I mean, I, I've read a couple um, pretty in-depth ones. Uh, 
and it's it's something that I really enjoy reading. It just takes a while because sometimes uh, it doesn't always make sense <laughs> right off the bat. <laughs> also, they all they like to make their fantasy authors like having like thousand page books. Yes. What series was that? If I'm just curious. Um, I'm trying to <laughs> the Death Gate Cycle um, by Margaret Weiss and Tracy Hickman. They also did the. I want to say it's not called Dragon Age. It's called like Dragon something else. It's like one of the big series that's like kind of related to Dungeons and Dragons, but it's not. Oh yeah. It's like a long series, but uh Dragon I don't remember what it is now either. But I know what you're talking about, yeah. Yeah, it's not I don't think it's Dragon Age, but <laughs> that's what I'm thinking of. It's Dragon something. <laughs> um yeah, I don't read many fantasy novels <laughs> at all. I play a lot of fantasy video games. I had a brief thought where I'm like, can I, try, can I try to slip in Dark Souls into this list and pretend <laughs> that it's a movie that Pia notices? I probably would fail, but I could try. Um, and actually, honestly, I, I joke, but when I thought about just kind of half hours, like, well, what if I were to pick like little moments from Dark Souls and stuff like flew to my head way easier than they did for movies, um, which is probably just indicative of how, while I try to be pretty varied in my film watching, video games have become slowly more and more insular and eventually these are going to be the only games I play. So, mm. you know, it's very easy to think about moments from those, whereas movies, it's like, there's, there's just more around me. <laughs> That's fair. And don't you spend like hours on the same video game too, though? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you gotta, so it's hard gotta for it not to creep into your consciousness, I suppose. You gotta figure out the lore because unlike most games which tell a story with like cutscenes and you know characters saying what's happening you know in dark souls or bloodborne you'll just kill a monster and you'll find a note that just said something about the sad being who came from the hills and you're like what hills why was he sad and then you got to go down a youtube rabbit hole of like these multiple hour videos trying to piece together what the story even is and it mostly just makes you feel bad for everything you killed along the way but you know Sounds so yeah, fun. it is. It's this great. I love them so much. I wish I was playing one right now. <laughs> oh boy. I think also like that's the difference between a video game and a book too, because like a fantasy novel would probably have some sort of index to like a map that they're describing or like a whole chapter based on a simple concept that they would probably just pass by or like a footnote or something. Cause a lot of fantasy books will go into those intricate details. And I find sometimes a little too intricately um yep. but uh but a video game i guess is more uh mm -hmm. i guess it's not a straight straightforward line through it's interesting too though that his not to get too off topic sorry and that <laughs> the, the guy who makes these games the main director hitotaki miyazaki the reason that their stories are so cryptic is because as a kid he his family grew up lower middle class he didn't have a lot of access to like leisure entertainments so he spent a lot of time at the library and he loved western fiction fantasy but he didn't have a super strong grasp on english so a lot of the stuff he would read he only understood sort of bits and pieces and ideas of like kingdoms and castles and swords and monsters but there was a lot that okay. was missing so this idea of like having to kind of piece together a story through just really small amounts of clues ends up being the dna for the way he makes games and uh and God bless that because they're <laughs> magical. So anyway, I just oh, thought that I thought it was a worthwhile thing to bring up with regard to fantasy writing fiction. Don't look there at me go. like that, Brooke. Okay. <laughs> well, didn't George R. R. Martin have something to do with the last game? 
he did he wrote the the background in the world universe for elden ring which uh i'm not sure too much about what the nature of the collaboration was i i think basically they called because they've he's been openly a fan miyazaki of martin's books and there's actually a ton of references to them in the games in just sort of little strands of influence but um I th- my understanding is Miyazaki basically just called him up, explained kind of what they were doing. They had a lot of just fun conversations. Martin kind of laid a groundwork and then wrote, one of the things he did apparently was write a short story set in the background of this world, which I really hope they put out in some capacity because I'm really interested to in what that is. Um, and then they just kind of designed the uh, plot around that background. Um, like, And it was something because games take so long to make. He did that like years and years ago. So there were interviews before the game came out where he's like, I can't wait to see what they did with it. Um, and there was also like a, a critic's quote, but it was from Martin on like a poster for the game being like, it looks amazing. George R. R. Martin, co-written by George R. R. Martin. <laughs> so good for you, man. Sold. <laughs> so does that mean you and your fandom are the reason that I don't have Winds of Winter yet? Possibly. <sighs> Where he's like, yeah, I'm, I'm swear I'm working on the next book. By the way, I wrote a Dark Souls in my spare yes. time. Yeah. He's banking on the video game to make a bunch of money. Maybe it'll sure. longer. <laughs> I think the real reason you're not is because he saw what happened to that final season and the fan response to that. And he's like, Ooh, I don't want them to do that to me. <laughs> he's just waiting for it all to die down. I just, but I do actually wonder to what some extent that that's like something creators of like really ferocious fan base stuff think about because in the last couple of years that's become such a recurring issue of like the the sort of um annie wilkes misery fix it yeah that they have to think about these things these authors at a certain point yeah it's got a way on them at some on some level i would think mm-hmm. but george if you're listening <laughs> i just want the book man you can't disappoint me i just want the book just bring it out. Please post content. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll subscribe to your Patreon if you finish the book. Yeah. <laughs> Have you read all the, the Thrones books then? Oh, yeah. Numerous yeah. times. Love them. Really? Yeah. So they're good. Yeah. Would you say they're like the show met that or are the books still a class above? Uh, well, I appreciate the book because <sighs> books more, but the show <laughs> is pretty great like it did a pretty great job at least for for a while there <laughs> um yeah were you disappointed with the ending you don't have to go into like specifics or it was but not to the level that i'm vitriolic about it it's just like <laughs> yeah they could have done it better but whatever moving on it's still wow. it's still I'm a pretty sure landmark <laughs> it's still a pretty landmark show like I, I i hate that the last season is kind of overshadowed what was pretty strong quality for a long time and I think people forget that and need to be reminded of it. Well, it's interesting to me that people talk about, and frequently the idea of this is talked about that the show's ending being, and I haven't seen it, we've, we've gone up to the end of season four, which has all been great. But, um, and I hear that's like the golden era of the show. Yeah, but uh, the idea that like the last season and the finale was so bad that it like retroactively tarnishes the whole is really weird to me because it's like, that's so many hours the people thought this was like the greatest thing they'd ever seen. And then instantly it's like gone. I don't know. To me, that's like revealing about, and this is not the nature of this week's topic, but like the way people engage with television, as much as people talk about 
it's the golden age of TV. TV are better than movies, but it still seems like so much of a TV audience's enjoyment is still based on that. Like what happens next, what happens next. And as soon as what happens next is not to their liking, the whole thing is, is, is garbage. And you don't really see that with movies the same way because as much as people are like, even those people who are like the last Jedi ruined star Wars, those people still like the other movies. Um, Yeah. And maybe this is something to do with there's like full stops after a movie. Right. So you can segment it a little bit more. I must. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. And also the fact that like movie with that, you can go back to those isolated entries, those single ones that you didn't like, and it's easier to, reappreciate them like alien mm. 3 is a movie i used to really not like but i've come around to really liking it in part because if i'm curious it's very easy to just throw it on and rewatch. whereas like a bad season of tv you don't really just go and watch like a late season of a tv show unless it's something like the simpsons well not a late season but like a random season just because yeah. like anything that's like a serial you can't really do that with yeah that's so. a good point well we talked about an adaptation of one of my favorite book series. Shall we get into another? Let's do it. Okay. All right. I'll start off with, um, I guess probably when we're talking about fantasy movies, it doesn't get much bigger than the Lord of the Rings. So I'm going to be talking about the Lord of the Rings, the fellowship of the ring. And which is of course the first of the trilogy. And I guess I got to, I'll just say spoiler warning. Cause I'm going to be talking about, <laughs> the aftermath of a pretty big moment so if you made it this far then you probably don't care <laughs> um, <laughs> so if you haven't seen the lord of the rings at this point you're weird <laughs> i'm just i'm sorry you are. Yeah. no we love you if you're listening to the show please don't leave Yeah, so the moment I'm going to talk about is after the aftermath of when Gandalf dies, in quotation marks, and and they're out. And so the, the Fellowship of the Ring, the remaining members have gotten out of Moria. And there's just like, and then there's like this little scene where, you know, they're devastated. They just lost their mentor. And Aragorn's trying to get them going because he knows that they're, they're still being pursued and they got to get out of there. So they're, they're there on the hills of uh, Dimrel Dale. So they're, they're out of the mountains now, finally. And there's a one little shot that is just always grabs me by the heartstrings. And it's, so they're getting all the, everybody up the hobbits. They're getting them up to keep moving. Everyone's devastated. And then Aragorn starts looking around for Frodo and he sees Frodo off in the distance. And the the wide shot there is great because you see it's you know he looks like a hobbit he's a little short guy which is one of the great uh movie magic moments to make these hobbits seem like they're hobbits and not people which i really like and then you get a scene where he just where aragorn's calling for frodo and frodo turns to look and you know he's crying and he just looks and he doesn't say anything and that's it and it's a moment that just always grabs me. And when I'm thinking about why, I think there's a lot of reasons. The first one is that it's very emblematic of what makes this trilogy so successful and beloved because it's like a picture perfect framed moment of 
very intimate emotional stakes that are set against a background of epic scope, which I think is exactly what the Lord of the Rings is. And I also like it because everybody's fallen into grief at this moment, but Frodo has just wandered away from the group. And I, so I also liked it because it, it sets Frodo apart from all the others because he is like, he's, he's got a mission that he's got so much more weight upon him um, with what he has to do that even though all these people are working with him and will do anything for him and will die for him. And they're always with him. It's still a very personal singular mission that he's on. Then he knows that like he doesn't, he feels things a little bit differently. Uh, I think he feels Gandalf's death more for the reasons that he really relied on Gandalf for a number of years and throughout this entire journey, but also guilt because he's the one that actually chose the path to go through Moria where they would eventually lose Gandalf. So I think there's a lot in that, in that little frame um, that speaks to a lot of ways that Lord of the Rings is just such a absolutely fantastic movie achievement. So there you go. Yeah, it's an excellent pick. Uh, Brooke, do you want to say anything to it first or just so I don't step on you? No, no, go ahead. I... Okay. Well, I mean, I like what you bring up, Ian, about the sense of guilt in that scene, because I think that is really important. Uh, and also for the reason that not only did he choose the route, but he is more directly at the center of this mission than anyone else by virtue of being the ring bearer. And both yeah. that guilt and the way he's isolated from the group does a great job of foreshadowing at the end of the film when he chooses to, to go by himself. Um, something else I love in that same scene, and it's less, it's not focused specifically on Frodo, but it's another simple detail and in character interactions that I really love is that, you know, pretty quickly Aragorn's like, we need to move. And Boromir having that line of like, give them a moment for pity's sake. And Aragorn shooting back by nightfall, these hills will be crawling with orcs. Yeah. And I mainly love it. One, I like the fact that like, you know, Aragorn is like kind of the coolest member of the group in some ways. And like the most action hero we won, you know, he's not just, and he's one that we have a lot of affinity for because we've spent more time with him relative to the rest of the fellowship. You know, he still needs to be kind of making hard decisions that are maybe not the most pleasant, but the most practical. But the main reason I love that is for Boromir because so much of his character could have just been like, and would have been easy for the sake of convenience just to make him kind of like the asshole of the group because mm -hmm. he's being corrupted by the ring's influence and his want for, you know, using it against the enemy and wanting to win at any cost. But he is so human and, and uh, tender in the scene. And in the earlier scene before where they're, they, they're being spied on where he's like, sparring with the hobbits and training them and it's like really nice and affectionate and it's just i love how layered his character is and how moments like this you know they give him so much shade and it makes it so much more crushing when uh i guess other spoiler uh <laughs> he goes down swinging but he does go down so yeah. yeah and and i think it's it's a tough line for that especially with the aragorn boromir but because Aragorn could come off pretty cold and callous, but luckily Peter Jackson kind of gives him his moment at the, like back at the bridge, because when Gandalf falls, it goes immediately to Aragorn's point of view. Right. And so 
he's kind of dealing with it at that exact moment while the others are getting out of there. And so without that, once you get out, out to the Hills, he's, if you don't have that, he's going to seem yeah pretty callous, but he also has his moment too, which is nice so that everybody, everybody is dealing with it, Mm -hmm. but he is a little bit more pragmatic for sure. In the book, it's it's interesting because in the book, it's not Frodo's choice. It's actually Gandalf's choice. Mm. But I do think it's it's uh, I do think it's a more interesting dramatic decision to mm-hmm. make it Frodo. And I don't know if that's mean to Frodo. <laughs> well, <laughs> no, I, I agree with you. It certainly gives an added layer of uh, drama to this scene, and I also think on a more from a filmic perspective and trying to adapt these novels, which are have a strange structure into, you know, a, the three act structure of a movie. Um, not that this falls neatly in three acts necessarily, but it, it certainly is extremely well paced and has the flow of like a Hollywood action movie in some ways um, that it makes Frodo like the active protagonist in making that choice, even though he's not as strong or as, you know, powerful as the other characters, he's still driving the narrative. So that's a good change, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then you want to? <laughs> I don't know. I was just thinking. I I did read. I haven't read the full uh, series of books, but I did read Fellowship. Um, so it's just interesting to reminisce on that and reading through that comparatively to that little moments like that um, yeah. with Frodo and the crying and the the scenes where it's cut to different people's faces and their reactions and how that's so different from when you read a book and you know it's it feels very tactile and i'm not saying you can't feel emotions with books that's totally <laughs> of course i've i've cried reading a book before but you know i just find that it's such a powerful thing where no words sometimes can say a lot yeah, so. that's very true. And with Tolkien, especially because Tolkien's not somebody that really gets, I don't know, he's an interesting author because he, he looks at things on like a bigger level. He doesn't really get down to characters, what's going on in their heads or anything. Uh, but this scene in the book is interesting because there's a, there's a little moment once they get out, because this is like dwarf country, right? And so there's this little moment where um, everybody's kind of grieving and Gimli says come with me Frodo and he takes them to like the secret pond that's like sacred to the dwarves and to show him like Frodo's special because he gets to see this and it's kind of like they they have this little interesting moment between them um, where they get to deal with their grief um, together and of course the movie can't do that that would stop the movie dead it would not be a good thing to do and this is this is Peter Jackson's way of getting those same emotions and that same um, dealing with dealing with loss in a more cinematic way. Yeah, you're right, Brooke. It's it's you can focus in on these characters a little bit more than you can on the pages of a book. Mm-hmm. And to that end, to visually isolating Frodo in the frame is something that visually is uh, a lot more sort of direct in its emotional power. Because you and I, I haven't read the book, so I'm not sure how it's written, but you could write a sentence of like Frodo stood apart from the group, and you get mm-hmm. it. But seeing that visually is so much more just like impactful on a just visceral emotional level. Um, yeah, it's a really good scene. Uh, I wanted to mention it's uh, it's more related to the choice, you know, that Frodo needs to make of like scaling the mountains or going through the mines of Moria. 
the last time I watched uh, the Lord of the Rings trilogy was with my younger brother. And we get to that scene where they're asking what to do. And my brother turns to me and goes, what would you do, Dan? Would you scale the mountains or would you go through the mines of Moria? <laughs> and I was like, I think I'd just die, to be honest. <laughs> You're like, ah, you know what? I'm going back home. Yeah. Well, I'm just, I'm probably like not even out of the Shire. And I like fell down a hill and broke my neck or something. Like, I'm not... I'm not even getting anywhere near Mount Doom. One of the yeah. orcs probably would have gone me by then. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> as soon as it's like, you got to do the long jump onto the the uh, ferry to the Prancing Pony. It's like, I'm not making that. I'm going to drown. I'm going <laughs> to fall in the water and I'm going to drown. Well, it's a good thing the fate of Middle Earth wasn't in your hands. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's, sorry, guys. <laughs> Star on one. <laughs> but, uh, oh, boy. You know, it's funny, like uh, starting with this in some ways is like we've got nowhere to go but down because I would argue uh, not just this film, but the whole trilogy is probably the best fantasy film in all of cinema. I mean, I got to agree with you. There's a couple of big ones you could argue and some of them we'll talk about here and like one that none of us pick, but I think all three of us love is Princess Mononoke. And that comes really close. But and not that the Lord of the Rings trilogy are like perfect. There's things about each of them, but especially Return of the King that are, you know, yeah. But they're kind of more than the sum of its parts. At a certain point, it's like, what am I going to knock off a half star because I think Legolas gets a too, few too many Superman <laughs> moments? Come on, like these are just immaculately made, and they're so. It's it's they really do feel like lightning in a bottle in terms of making such a dense, rich fantasy world that is both um satisfying to people in terms of its uh level of depth and uh, detail but also accessible to like an ordinary audience in a way that Tolkien's books and this is not a criticism of them but they're not accessible to that audience in the same way um that's very know, true that's like a seminal achievement yeah. You take them for granted until you watch the Hobbit movies. <laughs> and then you're just like, wow, how did how did Peter Jackson go from that to this? That's a good point, though. Or even like uh, the I think this is a point that Michael made many years ago, our friend of the show and frequent guest about Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows part two, where like the big battle of Hogwarts and it's like they finally built to it. And it's like, it's all right. And you look back and it's like, wow, doing these like big epic fantasy battles of armies clashing is a lot harder than it looks because that has all the same resources that Peter Jackson did. And it's just not, doesn't have that same sense of scale or, or magic that uh, the Jackson does. So well, I think like, I think this trilogy was a true labor of love and not just for Jackson, but like for almost everybody involved in the film, mm. like, I think they recognize that this is, that this could be something great. And they just put everything into it. Like the cast, the crew, um, like Howard Shore, I've never heard, especially in the scene we're talking about, that his score is magnificent for these movies. They're mm -hmm. they're top notch, and and I think that's a big reason why they came out as well as they did because people were the working on it were so passionate about it. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And it's it, something else I was thinking about when I last watched them, or maybe it wasn't when I last watched them. It was just a stray thought. But it's like, are, are these films the greatest achievement in franchise filmmaking ever? More than Star Wars movies, more than James Bond, more than Marvel, definitely more than Marvel. But like, in terms of just the artistic merit of the films, and I think it goes to what you're saying of like, that they were, even though they were made as a trilogy and as, you know, intending to be big movies, they aren't a franchise in that sort of 
calculated way. They were a labor right. of love from people who seemed to really love the source material and wanted to do it justice and and put everything they had into the works and also the fact that they were lucky enough to get the production that they needed in terms of like it can be three movies it's not going to be two that yeah. we're going to give you the t- the pre-production time you need just to make everything yeah because it was like two years characters. of just building shit i think probably um which is yeah. insane but it, and it's it's not insane in a way of like of course it makes sense when it's how much work is is but when you think about how like so many Hollywood films will go into production with the script not even finished. The fact that they were spending like that much time to get it right is kind of a miracle. Yeah. So it's fantastic. Good pick. Oh, all right. Uh, Brooke, why don't you take it away? Well, I have to follow up to that. <laughs> well, you don't have to make the greatest fantasy film of all no, time. No, I guess so. I'm not Peter Jackson. <laughs> um, <laughs> So I chose a movie. I actually don't remember what year this was made. 86. 86. Okay. Um, uh, Jim Henson's Labyrinth, uh, which stars David Bowie and Jennifer Connelly. That's that's her name, right? Oh, my God. I'm like literally so bad at this. (laughs) Um, And I don't how much do I have to go into plot necessarily for this? Like, do I should I just give it like a short summary? I mean, Teenage girl goes into a fantasy world and goes on an adventure. Yeah, that's she, enough. She basically, <laughs> she basically just wishes that her brother, the goblins, would take her brother away. And the goblin king is David Bowie. And, and he's, he's like, okay. Yeah, he's like, okay, I'll take, I'll take him away. And she's like, wait, no, that's not what I wanted. Um, and my moment in this movie is actually closer to the beginning um, when David Bowie essentially brings her to the labyrinth. And says, if you solve my labyrinth in 13 hours, you can have the baby back. Which at that point, I'd be like, yeah, no, I'm going home. I'm tired. <laughs> but um, Jennifer Connelly's like, I'll do it. Like, I'll solve your labyrinth. No problem. So then she starts walking through. Um, and the first thing we see in this movie or like first creature is one of the characters that we come to know as Hoggle just peeing in the pond. We see him turned around and he's literally just peeing in the pond he turns around he's like oh zips up his pants and then turns around and she's like okay that's that's the first (laughs) thing we see in this in this fantastical movie where you know it sets it up as like this epic journey that and kind of a a bit of like a coming of age thing where you know jennifer Connelly's gonna figure out her life and not take everything for granted and a lot of the movie, I think, kind of, um, I guess, tries to argue that or um, counteract that in a sense. Uh, like right after this moment where we see Hogglepeen in the pond, uh, he's spraying these fairies down like with pesticide. And she's like, oh, like, why would you hurt the fairies? And then one of them bites her. And he's like, well, what did you expect from fairies? And she says, I don't know, for them to grant wishes. And he says, shows you how much you know about fairies. <laughs> I just find that so funny that is you just have all these expectations of uh, a young girl going on this adventure with something like Snow White or um, Wizard of Oz. Like I know they kind of hint at that in her room. She has those kind of books um, laid out and so you think okay there's going to be all these magical things she encounters but a lot of them are just there to mess with her or to um 
I guess show you that it's not always white roses and fairies. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I, I just find that really funny. Like we rewatched the movie and I saw that scene and I just, I laugh every time. Cause I'm just like, that's such an absurd thing for a PG movie just to have this guy taking a piss in the pond. <laughs> so, And that's something we talked about a lot. What we were watching is like, this movie would not be rated PG today. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and it's not like, particularly violent at all really um but it's got you know it's got crudeness it's got farts peeing in a lake it has child it has a scene where a baby is surrounded by monsters and crying pg-13 right there drinking and getting drunk yeah yeah the goblins have a little bit of a little party really like the baby's life seemed pretty cool he got to hang out with david bowie and a bunch of weird monsters partying like yeah that sounds all right (laughs) (laughs) Um, I like your moment too, though, for just like, it's so gross. Yeah. And um, well, yeah, you would love a... that. Hey, <laughs> <laughs> don't tell me what I know. You're right, but that's not the point. Um, but I think there is a tendency for like, to think, you know, and, and especially in like children's animation where even in Pixar and I love Pixar, it's very clean, very like nice and cute. Even in a movie like A Bug's Life, all the bugs are cute. And so, you know, the, there's a place for that, but I think a lot of kids really like gross stuff too. And this movie's oh, gross. Definitely. It's got, you know, there's like the stench of, uh, what is it, the bog of eternal stench? Yeah. Yeah. Where it's just like, it's just this swamp that's supposed to smell like, we don't even, we're not even told what, but you just imagine the grossest thing and it kind of like bubbles in these disgusting ways. Yeah. Um, if you so much as stick your foot in, you'll smell like it forever. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And it's like, it's, it's fun how nasty it is. And it's, the film was not successful when it came out, but the, it's endurance suggests that like kids like gross stuff. And uh, I hope it's not putting you too much on the spot Brooke, to ask this, but I was also thinking in particular, there's a tendency that like little girls like pretty princesses and nice flowers and cute things. Sure. Yeah. And this is a movie that seems to be aimed, I think, largely at young girls more than young boys. Mm-hmm. And it is so gross. And I think you watch this as a kid, did the grossness appeal to you? I mean, sure. So did David Bowie, though. <laughs> I, think that, I think that's the biggest thing for the girls. They're like, who is this guy? Fair. He can sing. He can and sing. Then you, and then you're awoken. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's certainly reflected in uh, in Jennifer Conley's performance, which is interesting, too, because, like, Ian, have you seen Labyrinth? <laughs> you're putting me on the spot. No. Whoa. I have not. You should watch it. It's good. I know you I should. should. watch it. Well, it's, yeah, if uh, I knew you I didn't realize you were picking it. If I knew, I probably would have tried to check that. It's true. We no, can, it's all good. It was pretty last minute. I, uh, <laughs> I'm terrible at updating documents, so. We just rewatched it last night, too. Yeah. But it, it kind of, it's interesting that um, the film is, in some ways on the surface, it feels like it should be a younger kid. Because Jennifer Conley, I think, was like 16 when she made it. I don't it. know. She looks really young well, in the movie. She's young, but she's like, she's still an older teenager. She's not like 10. And that's right. kind of on the surface, what you would expect this character to be based on like yeah, her maturity like and, or something. Yeah. And also just the way she acts in the beginning of like playing fantasy in the park by herself and like talking to herself out loud the way she does. It's like, this feels like it should be a little kid until you get to David Bowie and the sort of, I don't even want to say their undertones are kind of just tones of uh, sort of, repulsion yet also very strong attraction where it's like that makes more sense for an older character um 
who's gone through puberty having those kinds of questions than it does for a younger kid. So even though on the surface, it seems like, why would it be, why is she so old? Once you get to like the ballroom scene, it's like, Oh, okay. That's why she's that old. Well, they straight up say in the movie too, that like he's in love with her. Mm-hmm. So like, it's not, I mean, I mean, I'm not saying it's not creepy as it is as her as like a, I, an older teenager, but if she was 10 years old and it's like, yeah, he's in love with her. I feel like that would be a no, no. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> and, and it also wouldn't make sense if, if she was 10, it probably would make the fact that like, you can tell from Conley's performance and the way the direction is that like, despite him being the villain, she's kind of attracted to him too. Yeah. That wouldn't make sense if, if the kid was like 10. Yeah. That's a good point. It's like, you're just creepy and weird old man. Yeah. But <laughs> when it's 16, it's like, I get it. <laughs> What are you doing with those crystal balls? <laughs> it's like, whatever, loser, pow. But when it's 16, it's like, I get it. I, I understand this character. Um, it no. sounds like this is a good example of those types of fantasy stories that try to subvert expectations away from like the traditional fairy tale idea. Mm-hmm. Right. So like I, I'll mention Shrek, but honestly, I think that when it try when Shrek tries to do that, it's some of the weaker parts of Shrek because it seems very deliberate but um you know along those lines where it's like yeah this isn't this isn't the fairy tales you've you've come to expect mm-hmm. um so i'm assuming labyrinth does it quite well because it's it's held up as so. a beloved film <laughs> for a lot of people yeah and a lot of it isn't so it, it's not like the smug self-satisfiedness of shrek it's just it's these details of it just being like it just being gross and the fact that a lot of the monsters like they're puppets but they look kind of grotesque Right. They're still cute in their own way, but they're not like they could easily give kid kids nightmares. Yeah, for sure. I know the Dark Crystal is one of those movies that a uh, certain generation of kids talk about traumatized them, and I'm sure some kids found parts of Labyrinth traumatizing yeah. as well. I didn't see it till I was like 19, so it wasn't quite as traumatizing for me. Um, yeah, it's not one I ever watched. I, I did watch the Dark Crystal when I was a kid, but. Hmm. Did it traumatize you? <laughs> I don't know if it traumatized me, but those images definitely stick with you. There's no doubt about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Something about puppets. Yeah. Jim Henson was an interesting guy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah, it's hard not um, to respect him. Yeah. I mean, that's the other thing. Like, I, I'm not, I think you're a bigger fan of Labyrinth than I am, Brooke. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, the, the sort of ambition of making like fantasy epics with like puppets and I understand on some level, it's also a limitation of the technology, but it's still a pretty bold uh, leap, especially when the guy also is doing the puppets for stuff like the Muppets, which mm-hmm. are many things, but they are not scary. So yeah. it is uh, on some level, just the, uh, the just you, you can't help but respect the uh, ambitions there. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And again, you got a little goblin man peeing in the lake. I mean, that's great. <laughs> Uh, it's worth noting the film is written, I think, by Terry Jones. It's one of the Python guys, and I okay. think it's Terry Jones. And you can feel his voice in it, even though it's not, it's certainly not <laughs> as adult-themed as the Python films. And it's not as much of a comedy overtly, but it does have that kind of subversive edge. Like sarcasm. Yeah. Yeah. Right, cool. Yeah. Good pick. Yeah, good pick. All righty. Um, well, now I'll go to the film we've all been waiting for. <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> So from uh, the 1920s, Fritz Lang's De Nibelungen, the two-parter film, this massive fantasy epic. I think each part is about two and a half hours long. Uh, part one, Siegfried, and part two, Kremheld's Revenge. 
incidentally to our German listeners, I apologize in advance for most of these being varying degrees of mispronounced. Uh, I genuinely would appreciate correction if you have them. Um, but so my moment in the film is right at the beginning of part one, there is this uh, uh, title card that says dedicated to the German people. And I'll get back to why I think this is important in a bit. But in essence, uh, Ian, you sort of suggested off camera to me that you uh, weren't sure what this movie was. was that <laughs> Never heard of it. <laughs> okay. Um, well, I can't imagine why you're not watching this every <laughs> Sunday because it's so awesome. But it's uh, so it's a fantasy epic from Fritz Long. It was made in the mid 20s. It was right after Dr. Mabuse, the gambler, uh, and right before he makes Metropolis. So it's uh, at this point, he's at the height of his powers, but it's an adaptation of an epic German poem that was written in like 1200, I think. And it's this epic fantasy story of, you know, Siegfried is this like great warrior. And within the first, the first scene of the film, he's like crafting his sword and hearing this legend about this kingdom. And then he goes off and within, I think the first half hour, he fights and kills a dragon and then communicates with the birds who tell him to bathe in the dragon's blood. So he does, and it makes him invulnerable <laughs> except for a small spot on his shoulder. And it's like, well, that's as you're difficult. watching it, you just got to think to yourself, this is the greatest movie ever made. Like we're like 20 <laughs> minutes in and it's, you know, so the first part in particular is this really just fun great fantasy adventure of like fighting dragons and exploring kingdoms and these amazingly exuberant exciting action scenes that I think still really hold up and it's visually it's so precise in its framing its sense of scale like it feels huge and it's really exhilarating but towards the end of the film they start to introduce another kingdom in conflict or in and, and tensions between these two kingdoms and certain machinations in play that eventually bring conflict and part one ends, spoiler alert for Nibelogen, with Siegfried, our hero, being murdered. And it's funny, for one, I just love that it's like this big extravagant fantasy that within the first 20 minutes you have dragon battles. And he's assassinated in a pretty low-key way where uh, his wife inadvertently reveals his vulnerable spot, the one place he can be killed, and that's used against him. And then he's killed. And then various plot machinations sort of... Uh, are revealed at that point to set the stage and the sides for the next film, uh, Kremheld's Revenge, which is about his wife waging raging war, waging war against the uh, nation that killed her husband. And it has all the same sense of scale and exuberance and uh, sheer sort of spectacular filmmaking, but the tone is way darker and more melancholic. And by the, the climactic battle of the film, there's this tremendous sense of loss as you know just so dozens and dozens of people are killed for what is ultimately you know one man's life um who maybe was innocent maybe didn't deserve to die but nonetheless it is sort of a senseless slaughter when you think about the scale of it and why one i love this because genuinely going into this film when i watched it i did not realize that part two would be as dark as it is so it was a real genuine surprise when it that it took that turn but i also it made me kind of rethink that opening credit of dedicated to the german people this comes out in the mid 1920s and the first film that dedicated to the german people feels very like triumphant non-inspiring like look at this great film this great exhilarating epic made from our great cultural background this great myth in our history and then part two is so much darker and more contemplative and more regretful 
that whether intentionally or not, I cannot help but think about the film as being released in between World War One and Two, And that on some level, I feel like Long was very much aware that he was addressing, you know, a nation that had just not, not even 10 years prior was in, involved in this uh, cataclysmic and destructive and devastating war where really nothing was accomplished. Um, and that sense of it being like a pointless slaughter is something that hangs over a lot of part two. But then thinking too about how in under two decades, Germany would be embroiled in world war again and another senseless slaughter. And obviously Lang didn't know that. Um, I'm not suggesting that he was like predicting that or even that he was trying to overtly make a warning film, but all the same, it's hard not to see the film in that context of being like this tragic lament for um, how easily nations can sway to bloodshed and war and, and being wary of that, knowing that in actual fact that would happen in his country and Long would even be driven out of the country within a decade because of the rise of, of uh, fascism and Nazism. And he'd flee to America by, I think, 34, uh, 33, 34. So, um, so yeah, that's my moment. I mean, it's, uh, it's, <laughs> it's not the most fun fantasy moment I could have chosen, <laughs> I suppose. Um, but I don't know, it, it, it struck me from the moment I saw the film that, uh, this triumphant credit of like dedicated to the German people and being like, yeah. And then halfway through part two being like, I don't know about this one guys. (laughs) Well, it's wow. That's interesting. And as you're talking, what I'm thinking about is I really like how you mentioned the contrast between the two films, because when I'm thinking about the world War one connections through that, as you're saying, the first film feels very fantastical, almost mythical, right? Like you got the whole Achilles heel idea. Mm-hmm. Like even Tolkien borrows this with a, uh, with Smog's weak spot and all that. Um, and then a little bit more of a realistic second half. And that's kind of what, if you kind of take a very simplistic look at world war one, world war one was a very interesting time because you're going from an age where, um, things were kind of, you know, very old fashioned battles were old fashioned. And then they got to world war one and you have this clash of old fashioned way of living with modern warfare and modern technology that nobody's really ready for. And the world is not the same after that. So even the world war one is a big divide between those two ideas in world history. A lot of people, you could think of it like that, right? Mm-hmm. So that's, I, I like that a lot. That's a, man, I got to check out this movie now. <laughs> That's a really excellent point. That idea of like the, the end of like the gentleman's war. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the sense of like, cause yeah, the first one is the first part is glorious. And there's by the end of part two, there's, there's no more glory. Um, and the ending is very melancholic. And even the way that part one ends, it's like, it's, it's almost sudden that it's like, wait, there, he's actually dead and then part two i believe starts with like these really impressionistic abstract images of like skulls forming from ghosts almost or like a human skull mm. forming from like an apparition and it's such a um i mean it, it's fantastical in that it's it's a, a cinematic construction to express this idea but it's so bleak and grim that it really does feel like even though they're, they're hard to see these films separately like they're they're part one and two so you could but they were released the same year and watched as a collective but there is such a stark divide between part one and part two Um, yeah very interesting they're really good 
I would mm. really, I, they're long. So you kind of need to set aside some time. And I, well, actually, if you watch them in two different parts, like I think they're each 220 or something like that. So if you watched one and then waited a couple of days and watched the other, certainly a functional way to do it. Um, I think I watched them all in one night, to be honest. <laughs> I think, Brooke, you were away for something. And I was just like, let's go. <laughs> <laughs> I did the same thing with Dr. Mabuse now that I think about it. It's like, all right, I've got four hours to kill. Um, this might be a hot take. I mean, no one in this room will care, but uh, I think Deniba Logan is better than Dr. Mabuse, the gambler. Brooke, can you believe he said that? Oh, my God. <laughs> Only fun of me. Shut the front door. <laughs> Just Mabuse is the one that gets more attention possible because it is a sequel, which I still haven't seen. But, um, uh, man, I was just blown away by this film. It's it, hard it not sense. to be. Sorry, it's hard ahead. not to be intrigued by a 1920s film that has dragons in it. I'll be honest. That's it's intriguing. It's it's honestly it's so awesome. The 1920s fantasy film does it's very intriguing. I think a lot of the silent era actually had a wealth of uh, you know really amazing fantasy films like the 1928 I think version or maybe it's 25 of the Thief of Baghdad. I think oh, is right. wonderful. It's very much the uh, uh, prototype for Disney's Aladdin. And it's very simplistic. Like you compare it to like the great silent classics. It doesn't have the depth of, you know, some of its uh, world cinema contemporaries, but it is an exhilarating piece of entertainment. Um, And one of my favorites of like the Hollywood silent films, not that I'm an expert, but um, yeah. yeah. Deniva Logan rules. Awesome. (laughs) (laughs) So, so yeah, that's my moment. Excellent. I like it. Okay. Well, let's go to something completely different. (laughs) Something people have actually seen. (laughs) (laughs) Something that's probably a little bit more in line with Brooke's first pick because it's like an 80s. Yeah. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But in line uh, with my first pick because it's a German. Oh, there we go. A German who directed it. Yeah. So we're going to talk about the never ending story. And the moment I'm going to talk about is there's there's a scene where our protagonist is, you know, he's doing all these tasks throughout this fantasy realm, which is, um, of course, called Fantasia, because why wouldn't it be? <laughs> the fantasy land of Fantasia. And he's got all these tasks to complete. He's got to save the world, basically. Uh, and he eventually has to find out how to save the world. And so he's told to go to find the Southern Oracle. And he goes through all these tasks to do this. And eventually he comes to the Southern Oracle. And what they are is basically these like twin statues that look like sphinxes, not to be confused with the sphinx statues from like moments before that he had to pass through. These are, they look very similar, but it's a little bit different. They're like glowing blue and they speak in this very like supernal voice and, um, and of course, they tell him what he has to do to save Fantasia. But the reason it has nothing to do with the plot, why I like this moment so much, it has more to do with like the tone and the feel of the film itself. Because when you, I think that when we're talking about fantasy, I think it's really, really, really difficult to create a fantasy world that seems completely otherworldly. But I think, oddly enough, this funny little family film, even though there's a lot of like goofy aspects to it, every once in a while it hits a moment like this where it, like it completely feels like a fantasy world, like in a world that 
does not exist where we live, right? And it's just completely lives in imagination. Because you've got this, yeah, they speak in this very wistful, airy voice. Um, but there's this ethereal feel to it that I think is really hard for movies to capture. I think it's hard even for books to capture this feeling that you have actually been transported to another place. And especially in modern day, and I don't know if Lord of the Rings is part of this, but it seems like more modern, like last 20 years, fantasy feels like they need to ground their stories in a way, right. To make, to get people to connect to it. And I, there's definitely logic there, right. I think that does make things powerful. But I also think that there's just something admirable about making a fantasy movie completely fantastical. And honestly, I think Never Ending Story accomplishes that, not through the entire movie, but there are moments where it absolutely knocks that feeling of it out of the park. So this is this is the one I wanted to, to highlight, but there's others. Like when I think of the ending with the Empress, with the tower falling around her, like... The, this image and that image they've always stuck with me because they're just so otherworldly that and celestial in a way like they're very very different feeling good pick um well it's something else and it's it's not necessarily strictly related to this moment but to that idea of it feeling truly otherworldly i think there's something there with regard to the fact that we're also experiencing the story as a story read in the book by a kid in like modern day, I believe. So yeah. there's this other level of separation that just makes it all the more like we're not, we, we're relating to it intrinsically in the text, diegetically, we're relating to it from an outsider's point of view. Um, we're not relating to it as Frodo or Harry Potter, who's part of this world. Um, and even in a high fantasy like Lord of the Rings, as much as it's not a world that resembles ours that much, there's enough shorthand that we can identify and connect with Frodo as if he's not so different from us, yeah. um, which is not really the case here. I just find this movie so bleak. <laughs> I just like watching it as a kid and maybe this probably has to do with the otherworldliness of it, but it's just like, I disconnect so much from it in a way that's like, it feels almost like a horror movie to me because hmm. it's so dark and those moments like with the, the Oracle. And I also think of the moment too, like you're saying, at the end with the tower and also at the beginning with the giants and they're crumbling and they're saying there's no more there's no more giants or whatever just like this world that's falling apart um and it's hard to imagine otherwise um i just i found it so depressing when i was a kid i really like the movie i mean and there's other moments that are very depressing as well swamp um, of sadness no <laughs> rip um but yeah, no, I don't know. I just, this movie is just kind of like so odd to me. Um, and yet I can't help but also like it. So yeah. I don't know. Well, it's funny, like as you're describing it, I never would have thought about it before, but as you're talking about just how bleak it is in the sense of it, like the civilization that's collapsed, the main fantasy movie that I think of in comparison is Return to Oz, which is like, <laughs> I don't know, Ian, have you seen Return to Oz? When I saw it when I was a kid, I've not returned to it. That's nightmare fuel too. But it, it feels like it was made deliberately yeah, to make kids sad. Absolutely. Like I still have a very strong sense of what that movie was. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
And like this, this is not that level of extreme. That one is like actively unpleasant in a way that like kids would hate it. But as an adult, I can't help but respect it because <laughs> kids suck. They get what they get. But um, <laughs> uh, but this film, it, it it's not that level of uh, of just cruel. But there is a, a sort of bleakness to it that's weirdly um, mature. And maybe that comes down to it being Wolfgang Peterson who directed it, who before this makes like Das Boot, which is this epic submarine movie about <clears throat> a German submarine crew where the whole thing is haunted with the specter of, I mean, they're, they're so vulnerable and close to death at any moment. And by the end, it, like, even when those who survived, it's not a happy ending. Um, but, you know, maybe that, I don't know if that's from him, like his sensibility is just inherently like, even if he's making, it's a fantasy film and it's for kids, he can't help but bring the sense of like morose quality to it. I'm sure it's to the, in the source material to an extent too, but he seems to really, really like jump in on it. Cause so many scenes too are like compared to Labyrinth where everything's, even when things are like scary, everything's still really bright. And David Bowie is like, he's the Goblin King and he's got all this power, but he still has like a fun musical number. Um, where it's like, oh, this is a fun time. He's not that scary. But this film really like stews in the fact that like it's a hostile world. Yeah, there's something unsettling about it. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I was just going to say, I find it more. Um, I find it interesting in comparison to the second Never Ending Story movie where we see after the collapse of civilization, them rebuilding. And it does feel more of like a traditional fantasy in the sense that there's like, you know, there's a villain, there's a plot, and the there is a risk of collapse um, happening, but it's not in the same kind of realm where, like, we're not brought into this world that's just complete desolate mm -hmm. depression. Yeah. <laughs> and I hate to say it, but it is just like Dark Souls, where... <laughs> No, but seriously, like the first Dark Souls is like, th there's a quest you have to go on and there's a boss you kill at the end, but you're not out to fight a villain and save the world. The world is desolate and it is dying and maybe you can keep it going for a little longer, but it's more, you're not fighting against a villain so much as you are just like the decay of the world. Um, so maybe that's a common thing in a lot of fantasy stories because um, I think this is based on a novel. Uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure yeah. it is. Yeah. So a German one too, actually, I think, man, I might be wrong on that. Germans are Never all mind. over the place. I don't know today. what I'm talking about. <laughs> this does very much seem like some sort of source text that somebody's used to inspire a film. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. In my opinion. Inspired a great lawsuit too. Lionel Hutz. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, have you seen the third movie? No, is there? Is there I think a there's a movie? third movie. I think it stars a young Jack Black. What the heck? Yeah, I think oh, really. Second one, unless Jack, a young Jack Black, is in the second movie, which is possible. My um, Nana has the second one on DVD, so I'd watch that. But I've never then, seen the second one. I only saw the first one like once, maybe, and then I was so depressed after I had to not watch it anymore. So then I would watch the second one at my Nana's and feel better. <laughs> That's interesting. <laughs> And but now watching the first one, it's just so fascinating to me, like how this would appeal to kids, I guess, in a way. <laughs> well, it's funny. There's kind of a Empire Return of the Jedi thing going where as a kid, I, I remember liking Return of the Jedi more than the Empire Strikes Back. As you get older, you're like, mm, never mind. But, uh, you know, one of them is a lot more. It's bright. It, not even just the, the, the story 
and the like what happens in the plot to the characters, but just visually Return of the Jedi is colorful and fun and Empire is like dark, not all of it, but a lot of it is dark and bleak and and like murky. And there's a similar thing going on here with, uh, and I'm not sure if the second one is more visually brighter. Again, I haven't seen it, but the first one, like I, most of what I think of when I think of that movie is just like that darkness. Muted color yeah. palette. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, the second one is definitely brighter in terms of like colors and visuals. In my opinion. Yeah, studio's like, we're making a kid's movie. Let's not get the Das Boot guy. Although actually, I think he did direct the second one. Did he? Uh, yeah, it could be wrong. I, I don't I don't know. We should, Ian and I should both look up things before we just make these Probably. <laughs> I'm going to look it up right now. So forgive the typing. <laughs> yeah, but I do think, I do think it's, there is some commendable about just the It was not directed vibe. by Nope. By, uh, it was directed by George T. Miller, not to be confused with the good George Miller. <laughs> he also directed Zeus and Roxanne. I don't know go. what that is. <laughs> so anyway, never ending story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I do think it provides an interesting vibe, fanta- fantasy vibe that not a lot of films hit, I don't think. So mm-hmm. yeah. it makes it very unique. Yeah. Yeah. And it actually, the more I think about it, like Labyrinth and Willow, these movies were very clearly like, even though they were fantasy films and not science fiction, they were very clearly trying to be like the next Star Wars. And I don't know if Never Ending Story was as much. Yeah, not so much. Maybe to the studio it was, but I don't think that the actual screenplay or direction is going for that vibe, really. No. Um, so, yeah. cool. All right. All right. Uh, Brooke, what's your next pick? Oh yeah, I have to go again. (laughs) (laughs) No, um, yeah, I had a hard time picking a second one because I, I mean, we did talk a little bit about it, but uh, Dan thought I was going to pick a Studio Ghibli movie just because I, uh, I do love Ghibli and Princess Mononoke. Um, But I decided to go with um, one of my favorite directors, Guillermo del Toro's Hellboy 2, The Golden Army. Um, And I don't know, there's just something about this movie that feels so fantastical, and yet it's also kind of a superhero movie, which is cool. Um, And I also love Ron Perlman and the whole cast. They're just great. Um, So my moment is kind of near the end. Um, I don't even know if these are spoilers, but I'll just kind of say spoiler alert anyways. Um, So basically, uh, Hellboy's hurt um, because he was fighting a bad guy, um, a bad elf or something. And (laughs) he was a bad elf. (laughs) Yeah, he was a bad elf. Um, So basically, cruising near Rivendell, you get accosted by some bad elves. (laughs) (laughs) He so basically he's been wounded with this spearhead that will kill him eventually unless the guy that stabbed him can remove it and basically what he wants in return is this piece of a crown that will unleash the golden army which is basically an army of robots and it'll kill the world is basically what it comes down to so liz uh hellboy's girlfriend is really determined to go after this prince his name's prince nuala so i'll just i'll just call him that the elf prince um so he so they want to go meet up with Prince Nuala to get uh, the spearhead taken out to save Hellboy. And Liz is really adamant 
and so is Abe and they're willing to go make this trip but the people that are behind uh the missions and oh my god I'm literally blanking on the name of the group the organization doesn't matter anyways the organization that they work at basically denies their um, request to go uh, meet up and make a deal and the Hellboy and Abe and Liz the three amigos are part of a group that's run at the time by this guy named Johann Krauss who's like a apparition mist this is really hard to explain on a podcast. I'm sure, like, explaining people, the plot of Hellboy. It's like, that's a weird movie. Yeah, like I, I, I'm sure the people listening are like, what is she talking about? But this guy is basically missed. In a suit. It's, in like, a suit. A, it's like a scuba suit almost. Yeah. Like an old primey one. Yeah. So he, so anyways, but, and he's got like a, a pretty thick German accent. I'm pretty sure it's Seth MacFarlane. That More Germans. Play. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> More Germans. Yeah. Um, so young Krauss is the leader and so Liz is talking to him basically saying he says it's too dangerous and she says okay um like basically screw you and uh you know they said uh he says you know I'm the leader and she says oh no there's no doubt about that but if you were ever human then that time has long gone and she runs out the door and Jeffrey Tambor, who's also a member of this organization, he goes to basically run to Liz and Kraus says, like, leave her. I understand. And that's all we get. And then it kind of cuts to uh, Liz and Abe talking and saying, we're going to go anyways. Like, we're just going to go steal this plane and we're going to go and get the spearhead removed. And so they're walking down the hallway and they're like, oh, like, whatever, like, don't, uh, don't notify anyone, whatever. And Krauss comes and meets them and says, oh, like, I see that you guys are leaving. And she says, you know, we're not, you're not going to stop us. Um, and he throws a bag to uh, Abe and says, you know, I've been thinking and, um, you know, you said I'm no longer human and that might be true, but I once was. Um and basically this bag that he tosses to Abe has like his wedding rings. And he, he says something very brief about how he lost the one he loved and he'd tell them a story about it one day, but in the meantime, screw the clearance. We're going on this plane and we're going to go save Hellboy. And I just, it's a kind of a small moment, but I just really like that. It's, he just says like, stop, I understand. And we don't really get any much more information from him. They don't have an, a huge long explanation to why, why this makes sense for in context. You know, he does end up giving that bag with the wedding rings and saying, I lost the person I loved once. That's a story for later. Whereas I find a lot of superhero movies to these days or any movie really, there's like oh, we need to talk about the lore and the background. And we need to, we need to have another movie that explains what Krauss's life was like beforehand. And I just really, it's just on and on and on. And I just really like that there's this moment that's addressed in a very brief way that's nonchalant. And it's like, I'll tell you about that story one day. And then they just continue the adventure. And I like that. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Um, well, it's it's the economy of storytelling that we like to laud so much on this show. Mm-hmm. Right? If you can get an idea across with only a few words or even a look or the way things something is framed, that's I mean that's that's what this is all about. It's yeah. Yeah. And I think like we were kind of talking about with Lord of the Rings, like maybe that would have worked in a book if, or like even a comic book, if they were talking about it, but in cinematically, it just makes more sense for them to briefly acknowledge, you know, Hey, like I was there once or Hey, like this happened, right. but not necessarily go into detail. Cause we don't always need those details when it comes to movies and those special moments that happen. So yeah, it's a really good pick. I mean, thinking about the currently like the the fascination with like, I think it's called on Twitter, they have that term for it of like people getting excited for glup shitto, where it's like just some <laughs> random Star Wars thing that was in a comic book once 30 years ago, where it's like, you know, just like really just zeroing in on like every piece of lore and blowing it up to be have to be this big thing. Or thinking about solo, which is a movie that I actually thought was way better than it should have been given where it was creatively it kind of works anyway as an entertainment but like everything we knew about han solo from the other movies it's like this is how that became a thing you ever wondered why his last name was solo like no not really like we're gonna tell you like the the sense of now in the culture where it's just so much of franchise filmmaking is about like just exhuming every or even the, the existence of a Buzz Lightyear movie that's like this is the movie that Andy saw in 1995 <laughs> that made him want a toy and it's like isn't that the truth oh my god well, even even Death of the Nile which came out this year which I enjoyed as a murder mystery but they decided that the prologue had to be the backstory of Poirot's mustache I am not I am not joking <laughs> yep or X-Men Apocalypse, where they give like an evil supervillain origin to Xavier's bald head. <laughs> you can't just be a bald man. People don't lose hair as they get older. Yeah. Oh, God. But you're right. Like, this is a great example of like, you know, and it's also a good way of respecting your audience where they can to it. There's some sort of tragic yeah. backstory because as there usually is with superheroes and villains, that is both a physical transformation, but also an emotional transformation. You don't need to go into detail of it. Seth MacFarlane's delivery of the, I understand that's enough. Mm-hmm. And you feel it more, you know, passionately than you would if you got like a 10 minute flashback of like, you know, how his, his loved one, I don't know, spilled ghost chemicals everywhere and made him a ghost man. Yeah. <laughs> and what, when know. we're thinking like fantasy adaptations, because a lot of, a lot of, fantasy starts out as like other literature and stuff um but i find that when when we think about adaptations and we've talked about this before but i think the weak adaptations feel like they have to have that kind of stuff in right they got to throw the backstory in because the fans are going to want it right the fans are going to want it whereas somebody like del toro you know he's savvy enough to say that's not cinematic right Mm -hmm. let me do what i need to do to make this work for the film and you don't need that backstory for this film you just need him to address it with that one line mm-hmm. god i wish they had made a third one with gilmo now yeah, we came close but it's never gonna happen now because life is cruel <laughs> like it, it, uh, they're so fun and creative and such a and i don't mean to make this all about like poo-pooing modern superhero films but they are a nice change of 
pace and flavor from Marvel or DC because they are so like they are kind of superhero movies, but they're so much in their own world. And it's like that would have been nice to have, you know, in between the big two. But I just love the, all the fantasy that they add, especially to like more to the second one than the third one or the third one. Oh, my God. The, <laughs> in my dreams. Then the first one. <laughs> then the first one. Um, but uh, yeah. just I liked the backstory that they used, And I'm sure it was in the comics at some point as well. Um, second one, they really let the freak flag fly. That's wonderful. I mean, I, I, it's funny when I knew you were doing this movie, I thought you were going to do just uh, Klaus's like helmet, the way that there's like the little just sort of pieces that hang off the front that kind of flap like a mouth. Yeah. And they don't really correspond to like words, but it's just a good visual and sound because like, there's a sound too as they move up and down in addition to him talking. Yeah. It's like like the gears turning. Yeah. And it's like, this is such a fun <laughs> costume and it is like a practical costume. And it's just, it's just neat. And there's so much tactile things like that in this movie where you don't get too much you know, context for like what they are, why they just, they just appear in a they scene. They just happen. Yeah. Or like the trolls that eat cats. They just, they just yeah. eat cats. Like you <laughs> just have to accept that that's what, and that they're afraid of canaries. Yeah. Okay. It's great. Um, yeah. Hubboy's so good. You know, it's funny though, the moment you chose, it kind of reminded me, and it's one of the few superhero movies that really took the lesson to heart of like, don't tell everything, but the Batman recently where we've seen Thomas and Martha Wayne get shot enough but at the beginning, when you have after the Riddler is killed, that um, uh, that first politician and Batman enters the crime scene and there's a kid there who's like the same age that Bruce would have been when his parents were shot. And there's just like a couple of seconds of them looking at each other. And it's like, this is a bit different because most people aren't going to know Klaus's origin and everyone knows Batman's origin. Mm-hmm. But without having to tell us what it is, you just feel it so powerfully in that look. And it's a good, again, respecting your audience. Don't tell them you know, implying what a character has been through is in some ways more interesting because you can kind of fill in that gap. Once you know, it's like, oh, it's, it's, you know, it's a dead wife and this happened. It's like, oh, okay. Like that's, that's not a bad backstory, but it's a familiar one and leaving it just hinted at makes it feel less um, of a standard trope. Yeah. 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 Awesome pick. Mm -hmm. Well, I suppose I'll close this out. I asked, Brooke mentioned earlier that I was asking if she was going to do a Ghibli film and she didn't. So I, I took that honor (laughs) and uh, chose spirited away. And I don't necessarily have like a small moment. I want to talk about so much as a small concept, which is the notion that when Chihiro enters this fantasy world, she has to get a job uh, sort of cleaning the bathhouse. And the reason that stands out to me is because spirited away is very clearly aligned with especially Alice in Wonderland and Wizard of Oz, but also stories like um, Labyrinth or Pan's Labyrinth of like these little girls who enter these fantasy worlds that are somewhat literal and diegetic, but are also somewhat extensions of their imagination that they learn a lesson from about growing up. And in those other films, it's going on like, you know, this grand adventure. You've got you've to travel to Oz. Yeah. You've got to solve the labyrinth. You know, and then in, in, in Spirited Away, it's like, hey, here's a brush, get to scrubbing. And on a, on a visceral level, I just find that really amusing and an interesting uh, uh, twist on the formula while still falling within it. But I also think so many of these fantasy stories are, they're coming of age stories. They're about kids learning a lesson for growing up. And usually it's in sort of abstract ways of like being more responsible or, you know, acting sort of, uh, 
in a more responsible way or hold or with that still holding on to a childlike innocence you know wizard of oz the dorothy has to learn really a very sort of conservative and unimaginative message of like oh home is really the best place in the world um you know it's these sort of like morale just really basic moral lessons and this i like how growing up is really more uh, simple and direct but also a uh, more detailed thing of like getting a job because i think for a lot of kids what growing up really does mean and like having more responsibilities is not some abstract thing it's like you have a job now and if you don't do it you're gonna get fired and also you kind of come to a point where you realize as you're getting older and going through school to some level the way that it's organized is about training you to get a job. Um, not fully and philosophically, I'd certainly like to think there's a lot more to education than just turning people into worker bees, but that is an aspect of it. And there are certainly people who wish school was more of that, including some students who are like, I wish they just taught me the fundamental things like how to do my taxes and blah, blah, blah. I don't wanna learn about English and the great literature in the world. But in any event, I, I find that there's something really uh, accurate in the way that like, there is sort of an anxiety about growing up being having to get a job and deal with that. And the fact too, that the job she gets, it's not the romanticized, what do you want to do when you grow up and the fantastic things. It's like you're scrubbing and you don't necessarily want to, you have no investment in this place or why it should be taken care of, but you have to do it. And the idea that like, as you grow up, the first jobs you get, and then a lot of times, most of the jobs you get are not things that are actually particularly spiritually or emotionally uh, fulfilling for an individual, but you have to do them anyway. And I love the irony too, that like, she's not, when she gets there forced to have a job technically, but she's told you need to work while you're here. So you need to ask, um, I can't remember the character's name, but the sort of, um, mistress who runs the place, you need to ask her for a job. And she does. And how accurate that is to like, when you turn, you know, 16, you're not forced to have a job, but you're essentially told to survive in this world you need to go get one so you need to go ask for this thing that you don't want and you see no value in but it's also a thing you have to do and I just love the way that the film captures that to the point that the end a lot of these fantasy films when they end have a sense of melancholy to them because even though we've gone on this great adventure and we cherish it it's now behind us and there's the sense of putting away the childish things and growing up and in this one, it's not just saying goodbye to this magical fantasy world. It's this acknowledgement of like what this has predicted for her is that growing up means getting a job and fulfilling a role in society, whether you want to or not, whether you think it's useful or not, you have to do it. And that's what life is oriented around is preparing you to serve a function within society. And I just find that such a interesting way that doesn't necessarily radically reinvent this sort of specific subgenre of like little girl enters fantastical world is coming of age story but adding a really specific wrinkle to it that is feels so much more specific to what growing up actually looks like and certainly what it looks like in the 2000s say um yeah so i like that and that's my moment sort of yeah, that's it's not really a moment well no it's a it's a it's a really good thought piece and as I'm, as you're thinking about it, I'm actually, I actually, my mind went off on a tangent and I'm thinking kind of along the same lines, right? That you're leaving your childhood behind. You didn't mention the parents, but a lot of this is like her 
leaving, not leaving her parents, but leaving the idea that she used to have of her parents, right? So the fact mm-hmm. that they get trapped there in these pig bodies and she now has to save them. It's it's kind of like that that time when you realize that your parents aren't the be all end all of everything, right? And they're not, they're not the authority on everything. And that's maybe, maybe, uh, maybe you actually could end up knowing more than they do and being better at something than they do. Yeah. And they may be literal, but also in a, in a metaphorical way, like, is he like, you know, just not relying on your parents anymore Mm -hmm. for things Mm -hmm. saying, you know, I have to take responsibility for myself and survival as well i guess and, and what getting a job like... is a big step to that right because yeah. it's it's you taking your own independence in a way yeah well and that's the other thing what it looks like is not glamorous it's not i will step away from my parents by embarking to oz it's like i will step away from my parents by getting a job scrubbing this floor and that mm-hmm. kind of sucks like as yeah. much as it is like it grants independence it's like this is shitty and i think the film really like taps into that um and certainly, too, like, uh, in a weird way, it relates to, like, the scene on the train, which is, like, this beautiful, like, tranquil piece. And I just think back to, like, a lot of the first jobs I had that were just, like, the soul-crushing, you know, uh, minimum wage, just horrible places to work. Not that they were, like, beating me or anything, but I certainly didn't like being there. And just the moments of, like, being able to, like, <laughs> take the bus home and just sit and listen to music and be at peace for a couple minutes was, like, so much more profoundly important to me than it was, you know, before I was in that type of situation. And I think the film captures something similar where it's like just not having to, once you have been thrust into that work world, those moments where you're not in it, where you even just have a small reprieve are everything. Right. Well, that's a really good, good pick, Dan. Thank you. I like it. Well thought out. Solid. Brooke, where's, where's that spiriting away in your, Ghibli uh, hierarchy. Would you say it's one of your mm. tops, or I'd probably say yeah, it's one of the my. It's probably in my top five. Yeah, there just seems like a lot of. Well, if we narrow five, it to Miyazaki but... specifically, okay. If we're yeah, because Ghibli, like, if we're talking about Takahata films as well, then that opens a whole other can of worms. But um, for Miyazaki, I think it would probably be probably second or third in my list it's my second i think yeah number one of course is ponyo (laughs) oh yeah (laughs) i like ponyo i can see that (laughs) it's cute it's cute i mean no no, anyone who knows me knows that a movie that's cute is probably not near the top of any of my lists (laughs) generally speaking Mm. um yeah but it is a fun one actually i think my top three would be Princess Mononoke being one, Totoro being two, and then Spirited Away being three, I think, if we're talking about Miyazaki specifically. I think I'd go Mononoke, Spirited Away, and maybe Nausicaa. Mm, That's not a good one. Nausicaa rules. Um, Again, I like the ones that have fighting. (laughs) (laughs) I like it when people hit each other. (laughs) Yeah, those robots rule. Um, I mean, well, Ian, I think you're you're at least a Princess Mononoke fan. I don't know where you stand on the overall oeuvre of Miyazaki. I would say I like most of his movies. Yeah, I would say I like all of his movies. I don't know if there's one I've seen that I haven't liked, but I would Mononoke is like the one that I love. Like if there's that's 
like I I absolutely love that movie. I don't know that I would say that about any of his other films, but mm. Spirited Away is probably yeah, it's probably second or third. Yeah. I will say it took me longer to click with than the others. The first viewing it just didn't it didn't land. I'm not really sure what it was. Like I could recognize a lot of the artistry to it, but it just didn't it kind of passed me by, but the second viewing I was like, mm, no, it really is that good." Uh, I still, I still prefer Mononoke. And I, it's funny that like, I think all of us rank it really high. We have a poster for it that I'm looking at right now, but uh, none of us chose it. And I'm not sure. Maybe it's just, it's hard to narrow down to like one moment. Yeah. It's too perfect. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's also so like, not to say that it doesn't have like little moments or little details that are great and they do, but it is like, it's almost the overall power of it as a whole. That's just so kind of knocks you off your feet. Yeah, um, that's very true. So I just found that with every Ghibli movie. And I think that's why I don't think I picked Ghibli is just because I find them so powerful and uh, just overall, like this great fantastical thing. It's hard to pick small moments because they all feel big in a sense. It's true to too. Me. Mm-hmm. Um, they so- kind of put you in a trance too. Yeah. Where like even after like I think about them, it's like it, it, it's hard to even zero in on just like little things, not just little things that are great, but just little things in them because mm-hmm. you know it, it, you're sort of in a different mindset as you're watching them. I don't know. That probably sounds like horribly pretentious, but whatever. <laughs> if you've made it this far, that shouldn't be a surprise. Remember that your first pick, Dan, was Dinibelogan. The rip, so. the working class loved Dinibelogan. <laughs> A story for all ages for all ages unless your kid's a wiener who's like oh the dragon scares me shut up <laughs> little brat you don't get fritz long's great masterpiece daniel's uh thoughts about kids are not reflected by the cinema and seconds podcast as a whole no my hatred for children is unique <laughs> to me and me alone um no kids were made were harmed in the making of this no no (laughs) um yeah cool it is interesting though that a lot of our like a lot of the these picks are kids movies i think we all picked a kids movie um Mm -hmm. with some frightening aspects and i don't know is that a thing that's still i feel like the frightening aspects of a lot of kids movies are going away now well, I mean, look at the response to Doctor Strange by some that they're like, this should be rated R. And it's like, it's not that violent. Like, no, it's really not. And that's why that's partly why we had that conversation of like uh, Brooke and I off camera of uh, we live together. So there's a lot of off camera moments. Um, Labyrinth being today a PG-13 movie because it's not especially graphic, but there's so sort of very basic things that get like i think the conjuring is rated r just for being scary Mm. there's no swearing there's no graphic violence oh but it's too scary and it's just it it is an interesting like reflection i don't think it's necessarily reflective of the culture being like coddled or anything like that i think it is just the mpaa being outdated and this archaic and its ratings um because I don't know. I don't see that reflected in necessarily movie going audiences, but I do think you're right, Ian, that like. But I see it reflected in movies, right? mm -hmm. This notion of the, even the notion of like people talking about like movies that they saw as kids that traumatized them. I don't know if we're necessarily getting that 
that much in, in I, the closest I can think of is probably maybe Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness, some of the more ghoulish imagery, because there is some, or in Infinity War, when you watch all your heroes get murdered. Right. Um, you know, but even that, it's like, well, that one does end with Thanos will return and not like Spider-Man will return. So that one at least maintains its darkness a little bit longer, but it also does get undone. Like you think about the generation of kids who grew up watching Bambi's mom get killed. And yeah, there's happy moments in the film after that. Bambi's mom don't come back. True. She stays dead. And I guess technically some Avengers stay dead too, but not really. Our We've taxes is again. not leaving that swamp. No. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, <laughs> gonna make me cry right now. Yeah, uh, but like, you know, Black Widow died, but then she got a prequel right after. Um, Actually, Vision died, but he came back as a sort of not Vision, but still him anyway. Like, no one's like Palpatine. No one's ever really gone. They will keep coming back, and you know, that's maybe an aspect of it that's lost from like these other films where like scary things would happen, yes, but also there would be consequence to them. True. That's a good point. Yeah, I was just going to say, like, I I feel like the movies that we've talked about all have, you know, those elements that wouldn't necessarily be in a a children's film today that add that layer of depth that makes it interesting to talk about. And it sparks conversation that's different than, I don't know, like, I guess Marvel, there is a conversation there, especially with like something like Doctor Strange, but it feels like there's more to talk about. Like, I mean, all the picks that we had weren't really like, they're probably at least, I don't know, 15 years eat, like old at least. Oh yeah. Yeah. At least, yeah. Spirited Away was the most new- recent movie and it's still now 20 years old. Yeah. Which saying that makes me feel like <laughs> a wizened old man. I don't know. Just like, yeah, I, I don't know. Just like adding that layer of, you know, the sad parts, the scary parts, mm-hmm. the, you know, and it's not all just. <sighs> I, I think we just need to respect that kids parts. can handle these things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we did. And, and it builds character like, yeah. and frankly, there's a lot of attraction. And like, I, I talked about this in the film bro video with a bit more like older movies. I'm not saying kids should be exposed to taxi driver, but there right. is a thrill, even when you're really young of watching something where you're like, this is a little this is a little too intense for me, but I'm going to keep watching anyway. Mm-hmm. And um, I mean, Disney got that back in the day. They, But now that they're scared. They have to sanitize everything. Mm-hmm. Um, you're and not going to get like, a lot of the recent Disney films, but yeah, they don't have a lot of bite. Right. Like if you look at Pinocchio, there's a lot of unsettling things in Pinocchio. Things that Pinocchio would freak you rated out R if it came out today. <laughs> yeah. Like body horror. Way too scary. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, um, that does seem like an intro. I hadn't really thought about that before, but this notion of like so many films that were for, for kids, but had these darker images that people would talk about as like traumatizing them as an, as a, when they saw it. I don't know if you're going to have that too much with, with a lot of more contemporary films. Yeah. Certainly, like maybe, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe there's some that we're forgetting. But, yeah, I don't uh, think the Minions has anything that's going to freak no. people out. <laughs> You mean the minions don't go to a land where they have to take care of a spa and and meet magical dragons and have to scrub the floors? I mean, maybe that's in the new one. The trailer didn't seem to imply as much, but... There isn't a minion named Chihiro? No. (laughs) No. Um, 
yeah, I mean, it's, it's a good point. And it does seem like fantasy in particular was like a, the, the genre that these things happened in a lot. Yeah, I because, agree. You know, never ending story is one that gets brought up a lot. Return to Oz gets brought up a lot. Dark Crystal, like, um, and I mean, I can even think in my own childhood, like, uh, in Fellowship of the Ring, that jump scare with Bilbo lunging for Frodo is like, and yeah. it, like it's, it, it's so quick, it's so sudden, and even seeing the film a zillion times, it's the timing is still <laughs> still makes me jump because it's it's so <laughs> unclear when it's going to happen. It's not like obviously foreshadowed by the cutting. It's just like instant, and his face is the most demonic thing imaginable. Um, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the sound. Gollum is a character in general too, just being so like. Uh, not just mischievous makes him sound too harmless like just like his weird twisted he's very despicable yeah, yeah. and again like I, I don't know I'm, I'm and it's hard for me to even relate to it I suppose because I'm watching these films from a different perspective so maybe there is stuff that kids are like recoiling at that would not even occur to us because be. we're old but um, yeah it's a yeah. good point and fantasy films were a good place for that they were scaring the shit out of children <laughs> as they should be in all times constant state of fear well i think it was a good outlet for kids to like or like people to tell stories um with lessons in them as well for kids sure um well i mean that's the whole point of fairy tales and the like traditionally in books and stuff would they they tell these stories as basically a warning to kids like don't go walking and talking to strangers and mm-hmm. don't light a candle in the house alone or it's going to burn down or something. I don't know. That was a German story. My chemistry teacher taught me once. (laughs) He read us a German children's story and it was basically about lighting matches. And then the house. He was bored of teaching chemistry one day. Yeah, no, like like straight up. Like he's just, and he he spoke it in German as well. Holy crap. Yeah, it was wild. It's intense. Um, But like using those stories as an outlet to kind of say, you know, there are dangers in the world or there are things that, need to happen in order for the world to move on like getting a job well and it's a good point too is like it's easier to process that in in a fiction Mm -hmm. you know like as much as it is maybe hard to watch be a young kid and see a movie where a character dies like death is a part of life and eventually you will have to experience it in yours and it's it's probably better if you have some i know like it happening in a movie is not the same as it happening in real life but to have some concept of it and some emotional way to process it from fiction is is healthy and it's good you know this was something that was someone put this up in a tweet and i thought it was a very interesting argument that uh it was in response to uh characters always in modern franchises always being coming back to life or like taking i think it was really responding to like luke skywalker being like digitally young again and not really mark hamill but it's like he's still there and putting forth I think this generation is going to have a hard time dealing with death. And I thought that was really interesting because it is like, you know, this thing of things in fiction can't be in the past. Not just that, not just that there's sequels or remakes or reboots, but like the person itself is tried to be resurrected or, uh, you know, brought back to that state in youth and like held in that kind of stasis. And, you know, it's a hot take clearly. Um, they don't have academic sources to back that argument up, but I thought it was an interesting thought um, because I think there, I think there's something to it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. We'll see what happens. We'll see what happens. <laughs> Cause really when people say 
I was traumatized by a movie in most cases. It's exactly. No, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Like unless it's like Jaws actually scared you from going swimming. Okay. Yeah. And you never actually learned how to swim your entire life. That's something different. But most people. Or you actually almost got attacked by a shark and then you watch Jaws. Like I could see that being <laughs> a stressful viewing. Yeah. You thought it was like, maybe it's about a dentist. And then you're watching, you're like, no. <laughs> yeah. But otherwise it's just, you know, it's respecting, it's respecting the kid's intelligence to be able mm-hmm. to deal with it and helping them. Yeah. Helping them deal with certain things. That's what stories have always been there for. Mm-hmm. So I think, yeah, I, th- I would like, I would like us not to get so uppity when these kinds of things are in movies these days. I agree with you. Yeah. I think we just need to let the movies Bring be dark movies. Fantasies back. Bring dark fantasies back to children. We're getting that that <laughs> the Rings of Power series. Yeah, it's we'll not, see what it's happens. The Lord of the Rings TV show. Oh. It's probably going to be terrible. Yeah, but that's. Uh, I mean, who knows though? Maybe, I was going to say maybe if it's. Uh, I will say this. It's interesting that we talked a lot about fantasy being oriented for children and historically the genre has been, but then you do have like game of Thrones being the most popular television series for a while. And it's strictly for adults. And, you know, it's interesting to think about what it's pop culture effects were like, did it inspire a wave of new fantasy stories? And I'm not sure it really did. I know there was recently an Amazon series, the wheel of time, I think, which was like a fantasy I don't know if it was any good or if it was well received or what the audience was for it. I mean, you had the Hobbit films, which technically made money and some people defended. I remember back in high school getting like just torn apart by friends who thought I was crazy for saying that they were bad. I think my argument held up a lot better than theirs as an aside, but you know, like they were popular enough, but it was more by the inertia of the, the Jackson trilogy from 10 years prior and from this, the, the popularity of the Hobbit. I don't know if the films were actually like well-liked or I don't know, people were clamoring for more. So I don't know. It'll be interesting to see like, if there is like a resurgence of fantasy um, with the, because clearly I would, I would have to assume that Amazon is trying to recapture some of that original game of Thrones magic in doing I this think so. series. Um, we'll see if it can pull it off. It feels very weird to jump back into that world when the original trilogy is not that old they and they hold up brilliantly like they you could put them against any film that's in theaters right now and they look better yeah so yeah that's very true i'm the way i'm approaching it i'm just like i mean it's not based off of anything it's not canon or anything like that so i'm Mm -hmm. just whatever if it's good cool and if it's not it's also weird though that yeah. I think they're reusing some of Howard Shore's music, and it's like oh, really? I understand that that music. I, I could be wrong. I thought I read that, but that also feels like I understand that it's hard to let go of that because it is. It does feel just like that's what Middle Earth sounds like. Mm-hmm. It's so culturally ingrained in us. But either it's like, that or Blind Guardian. <laughs> but it's like uh, I was going to say Led Zeppelin because uh, <laughs> in Ramble On they actually reference Gollum by name. Yeah, they have a few a uh, few Lord of the Rings references. They were Lord of the Rings nerds well before it was cool to be, which is crazy because <laughs> they were arguably like the coolest band in the world at their time, at their peak. But um, but yeah, like it's like um, when you remake, when Christopher Nolan does the Dark Knight trilogy, it'd be like if he reused Danny Elfman's score. And it's like, I understand that sound is iconic to the character in the world, but it also inherently, if you were to do that, it inherently beholdens it, your version to that other version that's already beloved. Yeah. So. Yeah. That's I could be wrong true. though. They might not actually be using the music. I hope they're not. 
Yeah, I hope not either. But then I also else don't, time to shine. I also don't know. That's the other thing is like, how are they gonna reimagine that world sonically? Because it does yep. just feel right when you watch Lord of the Rings. Yep. Uh, it really does. So. All right. Awesome. Well, I think we uh had a good uh fantasy chat. Yeah. Yeah. So We're we want more fantasy, well. Hollywood. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> what do you have anything to plug social uh, medias no i'm pretty boring <laughs> um yeah cool follow eyebrow cinema yeah <laughs> subscribe to my youtube channel eyebrow cinema brooke has a video on it the uh magic in the movies montage was made by her awesome yeah, yeah. we couldn't monetize it though so we didn't make any money yeah, from it no big but money but no <laughs> no little money either just no you money you have all. to just siphon off of his other videos mm-hmm. <laughs> don't worry <laughs> <laughs> yeah um ian do you have anything to plug this week i do not nope Alrighty. yeah well there we go i think we'll wrap it up well yeah, yeah thanks have... sorry i was just gonna say if you have i'm sorry if you were gonna say this exact same thing ian if you the listener have uh other fantasy films that we didn't cover and there's there's definitely a lot i think we covered a pretty wide range yeah um including the silent era so you know we covered our bases but there's a lot of details within those uh areas that we didn't talk about or only talked about briefly so if you have other big fantasy sort of uh works with little moments that you'd like to share we'd love to hear them you betcha so at cinema underscore seconds is where you can reach us mm-hmm and brooke thanks for coming on yeah thank you for having me yeah it was a pleasure good to have you back i've been ian and i'm daniel and we'll see you next time